0: We are in this series that we started right after Easter entitled, King of Hearts. And we just sang a song that literally has that phrase in it. And what we are doing in this series is we started in 1 Kings 1, we will end this series in 1 Kings 11. And what we're doing is in this chunk of scripture is we are looking at Solomon, who is David's son, Solomon being uh, really the king that enjoys the greatest prosperity in all of Israel as king, and looking at his rise to the throne, and seeing in that rise to the throne, seeing that Solomon is very intentional with something, he's intentional in the Lord being the king of his heart. But as we begin to venture in further and further into the chapter's leading up to chapter 11, we also find something. We unfortunately find not just the rise of Solomon as king and seeing God bless Solomon, but we also see the demise. And we see the demise resulting because Solomon, though at the beginning of his reign, the Lord is indeed the king of his heart, towards the end of his reign, other things begin to crowd into his heart, crowd into his life. To begin to take his allegiance away from where it should be rightly placed in the Lord and his relationship with him. And because of the decisions that Solomon makes for things to come into his heart and to crowd out the Lord in that place of priority that he needs to be, we see the consequences that come because of that. And so if we're going to use that phrase, king of your heart, then I think we ought to define it. And so I want to define it this way. We've been giving this definition every week, but let me give it again. Here's what we mean by king of your heart. Literally means this, submission to the Lord in all areas of your life. See, what we need to remember and what we've already seen in this series as we've been going through these chapters and what we will continue to see is the Lord is not a God of compartmentalization. He's not satisfied to have some of your heart. He's not satisfied to have 90% of your heart. But when I say that the King Jesus, the Lord, is the King of my heart, what I am saying is, is that I am submitted to Him in all areas of my life. And so as we are in this series, we're seeing the blessings that come because of that. And we're seeing the consequences that come when that's not the case. And hopefully through Solomon's life, as we look at God's word, we are able to apply things to our life that can guard us from experiencing those consequences that the Lord does not want, to, want us to experience, nor should you and nor should I. So we're in chapter 8, and if you were with us last week, you're like, well, man, we were in chapter 4, and now we're in chapter 8. What happened to 5, 6, and 7? Well, I'm going to touch on that because what you find in chapter 5 is this. You find the detail and the work and the beauty that goes into Solomon beginning to construct this temple that God has promised David, his father, that his son Solomon would build. In fact, let me just point out a couple things in chapter 5 that you find. You find that there was 30,000 men that gathered the cedars and the timbers in other words the in other words the wood that was necessary to build this temple 30,000 men so obviously this was a massive undertaking then you find 70,000 workmen the guys that were responsible to actually roll up their sleeves and do the work 70,000 and then you had these stone cutters that were responsible obviously for forming the stones that would be necessary for the temple you had 80,000 of those guys, and then you had 3,300 supervisors. Some of you are like, well, that's pretty good odds because at my job it seems like there's way more supervisors than anyone doing the work. Well, Solomon, remember, wisest man who ever lived, obviously man, Jesus Christ, the wisest God man, but Solomon set up this structure in order to build this temple, and you find that in chapter five, but then you come to chapter six and here's what you find in chapter six. You find the size of the temple. Now what I thought was interesting is as I was studying this this week, for some reason I got my mind into thinking that Solomon's temple, like not the courtyard, but the actual temple was a lot bigger than it was because we're actually given the dimensions in chapter six. It says it was 90 feet long and it was 30 feet wide, so it was about 2,700 square feet. Some of you might even have homes that size and it was 45 feet high, so it wasn't a tremendously large structure but it was definitely an ornate structure. And it took seven years to build the temple. That's what we find in chapter six. And then we come to chapter seven, and it's very descriptive to all the ornateness that goes into the temple, how things were carved, how much gold there was. And just begin to see if you read through chapter seven, how ornate, how beautiful, how much time and detail went in to building God's temple. But now we're going to focus in chapter eight. And here's what I want to remind ourselves of because here's what you need to understand. When you came in the doors this morning, here's what you need to understand you did not come to a temple. We don't worship God in a temple, we don't do that. You know why? Because we are God's temple. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you realize that his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection was, is what was necessary for me to have a relationship with God, not in the good that I do, but in the perfection that Christ has accomplished for me, that if you, that is you and you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you need to understand something. You are God's temple. We are God's Temple today. So the title of this message is this: as we look at chapter 8 of 1 Kings, you are the temple. Now here's why I say that, because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3:16. Just listen to this. Do you not know that you are God's temple? He calls us that. And that God's Spirit dwells in you. So this is going to be fun. You probably haven't said this in a long time or had this said to you in a long time. Maybe some of you had. Just look to the person next to you and say, I am a temple. How awesome was that? Like you, maybe hopefully you seize the opportunity to flex a little bit. Like, did you realize that I am the temple? A temple. And that's actually what Paul calls us. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.5. Listen to this. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. One of those spiritual sacrifices that we just participated in was in our singing." Another spiritual sacrifice that we took in was taking up the offering and reminding ourselves that what we've been given has been given to us by God, entrusted to us by God, to steward for His kingdom purposes. That's our responsibility to offer spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12:1 says, "I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, that this is my spiritual act of worship. We don't worship in a temple today. you are the temple. I am the temple." I want you to say this phrase with me, and I'm going to say it first, and then I want you to say it with me. Say this phrase, we are the church. Say that with me. We are the church. We are the church. I just want to drive this point home before we look at 1 Kings this morning. What we need to understand is this building that we gather in, and we're thankful for it but this building that we gather in is where we collectively praise our audience of one, the Lord with one voice. It's the place we gather in. It's the place where we love one another just as Christ has loved us. It's the place where we are encouraged, that we ought to encourage one another and strengthen one another. Hebrews talks about that. We ought to stir one another up to good works. It's the place where we are encouraged. It's the place where we're equipped. Ephesians 4 talks about that the role of the pastor and the shepherd and the teacher and the prophet and the apostle is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So this place that we gather in is where one of the places that we pray, God, where we love one another, where we encourage one another, where we're being equipped. But this building's not the church. You are the church. I am the church. We are the church. We are God's temple. And so if we look at chapter 8, that we're going to look here in just a moment, and we look at this prayer of dedication that Solomon gives, because that's really what chapter 8 is. It's this Prayer of dedication in the temple. And we're going to see how beautiful and amazing this prayer of Solomon is for this temple that God has given him the privilege to give, to build. And what we're going to see is his desire. His desire that this temple would be a place of worship. It would influence Israel's worship of God but not just influence Israel's worship of God, but it would also influence the worship of other nations who would find out who the Lord is. And so in chapter 8, we, we, we see the beauty of it, of this temple. We see the influence that Solomon's desire is for this temple. So how do we apply chapter 8 that we're going to look at this morning? We don't worship in a temple, but you're the temple and I'm the temple. We are the church. I believe that we, as we walk through this chapter, are going to see this principle from 1 Kings 8. It's this, that the beauty and the influence of this church, because we're going to be specific this morning, this church, the one that you call your home, this church is dependent upon the Lord being the king of your heart. Because God's desire is is for this church to to be beautiful and to exude his glory and exude his beauty and to exude the beauty of those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light and, and to have influence, that you and I together collectively are to have influence. But that's dependent upon the Lord being the king of our hearts. So I'm going to pray here in just a moment, and this is what I want you to pray as I pray out loud. That you would say, Lord, where in my life are you not the king of my heart? Where am I not submitted to you in all areas of my life? Which is it? Where's the closet? Where's the drawer that I haven't let you in? Where is it? And Lord, would I be ready to receive from your word what you have for me that speaks to that area so that I can display the beauty of what you've done in my life, the beauty and influence that the Lord desires this church to have. You pray with me as I pray out loud. Lord, we are here today to hear from you. Lord, we have a phrase that we say here that when your word is open, your mouth is open. So, Lord, would we be ready to receive what you have for us from your word? Lord, I thank you for this church. The people in this room that have been called out of darkness into marvelous light, That can call you Father because of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that we are the church. I mean, we be a church that shows your beauty and has influence in this city and beyond for your honor and glory. So, Lord, would you show us what you want us to receive today and apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do in this passage of Scripture in the time we have left is I want to give you four ways, four ways your heart plays a role in the beauty and influence of this church. Because remember, I said it's dependent on the king being the king of not just my heart, Not just the pastoral staff's heart, not just the elders' hearts, but all of our hearts. So four ways that your heart plays a role in the beauty and influence of this church. So let's jump into this passage of Scripture. And though we're not going to be able to deal with every verse because it's a lengthy passage of Scripture, we are going to deal with chunks of this chapter that are going to get at Solomon's heart in this prayer. So look at verse 6. It says, then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its so, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence for the people of Israel. It was the most cherished relic that they had. It was the place where the priests would sprinkle blood on top of that, top of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat once a year to have forgiveness for the people of Israel. And so, this was a cherished thing. So, just imagine the temple is done, it's finished. All the detail, all the labor, all the work, and here comes the procession and these priests are carrying in this Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes God's presence. I mean, you can almost imagine the hush as this object comes in that symbolizes that God is with them. Let's continue reading verse 8, and it says, the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are are there to this day. In verse 9, and there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. So we know in Hebrews 9 how it tells us that There was two tablets of stone, which was the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses that were in the ark. At one time, there was a pot of manna symbolizing God's provision. And there was Aaron's rod, who who was Moses' right-hand man that budded, that was in the ark as well. Now, obviously, they were not there to this time because the ark of the covenant was stolen back and forth, and who knows? The pot of manna probably spoiled, and so, but what is here is the essence of God's law, these two tablets. Now look at verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. I love this phrase. This phrase is key. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So they set this ark into this inner sanctuary, the most holy place, the place where the high priest could only go in once a year to atone for the sins of the people by taking that spotless lamb and sprinkling that blood, as I said, on the mercy seat. But can you imagine this cloud just envelops this holy place? This cloud is mentioned throughout Israel's history. It's mentioned as the cloud of glory that led the children of Israel in the wilderness. We see that in Exodus 16, and it filled the tabernacle, the tent, when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, and that's in Exodus chapter 40. But here's what this presence did. It protected the people. That's what this presence, this cloud symbolized was God's protection, and it literally did that. It protected the children of Israel from the Egyptian army that was chasing after them when they were at the Red Sea, and so this cloud protected. But this cloud also guided Because if you look at Exodus, when when the children of Israel are wandering around in the wilderness, this cloud was what guided them. And what this cloud also demonstrated is it demonstrated that God's presence was with his people. Like it made this shell of a temple as beautiful as it may have been to the eye looking on, all of a sudden it gave it substance. It gave it meaning. Because God's presence was there. And it reaffirmed the Lord's never-changing character that the Lord desires to dwell with his people. See, here's the first way that I believe our heart plays a role in the beauty and influence of this church. Is number one, when your heart is about God's glory, this place, this church, will be a place where God's glory is manifested but it starts in my heart. So if there's no temple today and we are God's temple, then you may be sitting here today and you say, well, how do, how do all of a sudden I become a temple of God? How all of a sudden do, do, am I called that? How all of a sudden am I a part of the church because you said that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're a part of a church and I'm glad you were listening because Galatians 2.20 says this, I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, it's no longer who I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The sign that I am a temple of God is when God's presence comes to dwell in me, and that happens through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says that I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit who dwells within me is a sign that I'm a child of God. So if we're using our language today, it's a sign that I'm a temple of God. It's a sign that I'm part of the church. Romans 8 talks about this idea that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of every follower of Jesus Christ. So if we are the temple, here's the beautiful thing. God's presence dwells in us just like it inhabited the temple that Solomon built. And the Lord's presence protects me. So when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of me. That Holy Spirit that that dwells in me, that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sin. It protects me from the wrath of God that I deserve. And it also guides me. It guides me according to God's word. So that when in God's word, it guides me. It, it it grows in me a desire to do what the Lord wants me to do, to follow in his ways, for him to be the king of my heart. So even as a follower of Jesus Christ today, I have that presence inside of me through the Holy Spirit, though it's not a cloud that envelops a room, but it envelops my life. Envelops my life. First Corinthians 6. Verses 19 and 20 when it says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? There it is again. And it says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. What was that price? That price was Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So what's my response to God being someone that has God's presence dwelling in him through the Holy Spirit? Glorify God in your body. First Corinthians 10 31 says this, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do what? Do all for the glory of God. See, my heart being about God's glory means this. Where he leads, I follow. Not where I I lead, he follows. But Where he leads, I follow. It also means that God is the one that I worship, and I am the worshiper, I wonder this morning, if you look at your life, even in this last week, would you say that your life, that your heart was about God's glory? Because I promise you that when your heart and my heart is about God's glory and everything that I do, this will be a place that when people walk into this auditorium or they walk into your small group or wherever we are gathered together, that they will come into that environment and they will say, there's something different here. And you know what that difference is? It's a group of people that have set apart their hearts to give God glory in everything that they do. Now look at verse 22 through 27. Let's continue in this prayer of Solomon's. Look at what it says in verse 22. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, Even though this isn't a message on leadership, what I love is Solomon is setting the tone and setting the example of what it looks like to give God glory. It says Solomon stood there. He didn't have somebody else do it. No, no, no. He stood there. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. And look at what he says in verse 23. Verse 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. There's that phrase steadfast love again. We looked at it last week in chapter three and four. It's that has-said love. It's that unconditional love. It's that love that comes from God to me. It's not dependent upon me. It's all dependent upon God. And it's interesting that Solomon, as he's dedicating this temple, he makes reference yet again to this has said love. Because here's what God's has said love is. It's not given to you out of obligation. Like God's not like, oh, I guess I got to give Susie my love. She was a good girl this week. Now, that's often how we love, right? We love often out of obligation. I'm going to do this because I have to do it. I'm going to plug through. God's love is not out of obligation. God's love is not motivated because he wants to control you, manipulate you. That sometimes can be our love. Our love sometimes can be, well, I'm going to show this person love because I really want them to get... I really want them to do what I wanna do and I wanna get leverage over them so I'm going to extend them their love but God's love's not like that. It's unconditional. It's not dependent upon you. It's all dependent upon him. It's not for God's personal gain. Listen, God doesn't need me and God doesn't need you. It's not what motivates God but every aspect of God's love has said unconditional love, this love that Solomon makes reference in verse 23, it flows from his divine mercy. What's mercy? Not getting what I deserve. It flows from his divine mercy and it flows from his divine grace. The other side of the coin, getting what I don't deserve. I'm not getting what I deserve, which is God's wrath and judgment because of my sin. But in turn, I'm getting what I don't deserve. I'm getting the Lord's unconditional love extended towards me. See, here's the second way our heart plays a role in the beauty and influence of this church. Number two, when your heart views the Lord as its greatest treasure, this church will be a place where the Lord is lifted with the highest praise. But it starts with me viewing the Lord for who He is. Not a treasure, but the greatest treasure. Think about it like this. What determines the value of something? A little economics class. What determines the value of something? What someone is willing to what? Say it with me. Pay. That's what determines the value of something, and I was thinking about that, and I, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just curious. I'm going I'm to Google something. I was really curious. Maybe my mind was wandering while I was studying at some point, but I, I was thinking to myself, I wonder what are the craziest things that people paid for something, and so I Googled like what were the craziest things that people, people bought on eBay, so just stick with me on this. It's going to... It's going to blow your mind. Here's the first one. Clippings of Justin Bieber's hair. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you know who Justin Bieber is, but clippings of Justin Bieber's hair just blew me away. It's so much so that I had to, Look and see if another website said this because I couldn't believe it. This is how much Justin Bieber's hair fetched on eBay. Not what it was listed as, what it was bought as. $40,668 in 2011. Crazy, right? Oh, what about this? Justin Timberlake's fan. In the year 2000. So we're talking about like in sync, like those. Those days, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Justin Timberlake's fan brought his leftover French toast for $1,025. Can you just imagine getting that in a cardboard box in a baggie and it's a half-eaten piece of French toast? This person is like, that's the best $1,025 I've ever spent. Stick with me. I'm not gonna take too much of my time here. But here's ad space. Ad space on a guy's forehead. Like a guy thought to himself... I got a forehead. Let me see if there's a, an opportunity to make some money. Some of you are like me, and you got a lot of real estate for ads, right? Ad space on a guy's forehead in the form of a temporary tattoo. So he's like saying, I'll put anything on my, on my forehead temporarily. Let the bidding begin. And so this company SnoreStop... Wanted to advertise its snoring remedy, and they, it went, the guy's forehead went for $37,375 in 2005. Like it got me thinking, I could do that for a week. <laughs> Here's the last one, and we will not digress any longer William Shatner's kidney stone. $25,000 in 2006. Crazy, right? Now listen. I went through that list and all of you are judging the people and probably you'd have reason to, right? Like I can't believe they'd spend money for that. But I bet if we went around this room and we took time and we said, man, what's, what's the thing that you bought last week and what you spent for it? I promise you, you would probably have situations where you'd be like, well, I can't believe he or she spent money for that. And they would in turn look at what you bought and what you paid and be like, well, I would never spend money for that. Why? Because value has to do with what something would, someone would pay for it. And it's silly and ridiculous As those things that I read off, it's to drive home that definition. Because now I want want us to think about something spiritual that I wonder when I say it, when's the last time you thought of this? If value is determined by what someone will pay, then think about God's unconditional love to you, think about what it cost Him. Think about Jesus Christ, God, putting on human flesh, coming in humble means and lowly means with not two pennies to rub together to experience what it looked like to be a baby and to grow into a man and to hunger and to suffer and to be tempted and to be whipped and to be beaten and to be mocked and to be betrayed and to hang on a tree giving his life for you and three days later rising again. Think about that price. And I wonder when the last time was when you were feeling down in yourself or you were looking in your relationship with God and you were like, man, it just feels like I'm doing this out of duty. I'm doing this out of guilt. If that is you, I promise you what you need to do this morning is you need to bring yourself back to the reality of what God paid for you and in understanding what God has paid for you it will remind you and encourage you in the value that God has in you. Because I promise you, if I am not viewing God as my greatest treasure, it is because I am failing to remember how much God values me, not in some narcissistic way, but in a thankful way, in a way of gratitude, See, Solomon understands this at this point in his life because he says, Lord, I want to thank you for keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. Psalm 73 is a song of Asaph. Asaph would have been like the worship leader, lead worship leader for Israel. And he writes this song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Whom have I in heaven but you? You're my greatest treasure, nothing compares. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion for See, when I'm viewing God as my greatest treasure Monday through Saturday, it is going to reflect when the church gathers together this place is going to be a place where the Lord is lifted with the highest praise. Because I promise you that when you're seeking the Lord with all your heart and you see Him as your greatest treasure, you can't keep your mouth shut. Let's keep reading in verses 31 or verse 33. I'm going to read verses 33 through 35, this chunk. And look at what Solomon says in verse 33. I mean, he's covering all the bases, is he not? I mean, this prayer is so exhaustive. Verse 33, he says, when, not if, not maybe, when, what? When your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you. You know what Solomon understands? We're going to fail you, Lord. We're going to sin. We're going to wander because we're not perfect And I think it's so significant that Solomon doesn't say if, he says when. God, when this happens, what does he ask? If they turn, Israel turns again to you and acknowledges your name and prays and pleads with you in this house, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers. Now he says it again in verse 35, when, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in they should walk and grant rain upon their land in which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Solomon understands the consequences that God laid out to the children of Israel before him that God will punish Israel and allowing their enemies to defeat them if they wander away from the Lord. Solomon understood that. Solomon understood that God is not going to allow anything or anyone to take his rightful place in their heart. Because when I am allowing anyone or anything to be the king of my heart, to be the place that the Lord deserves, that the Lord desires. You know what that's called? That's called idolatry. And God in his loving kindness and his steadfast love that we just talked about just a minute ago, he will not allow that to go unpunished. Because he loves you, as Hebrews says, like a father loves his children. So what is my response to idolatry when the Holy Spirit, God's presence inside of me, reveals it. It's this, confession and repentance. See, here's a third way that my heart plays a role in the beauty and influence of this church. Number three, when your heart sees the need for confession and repentance, this church will be a place where people find healing and restoration. See, it starts with me. It starts with me admitting that I'm a sinner. Not if, when. Confession means this. It's agreeing with God on what we did and seeing it as wrong and seeing it as sin. God, I've done this. I acknowledge it. It's not going to God and saying, yeah, God, I messed up a bunch yesterday. I hope you'll be okay with it. No, 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 no. It's naming it. It's owning it. It's seeing the way that God sees it confession. And 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Confession is involved. In my heart, when the Lord reveals that something else has crept onto the throne that the Lord rightly deserves to sit But what about repentance? Repentance is this. Repentance is a change of mind on how I view that sin. And it's seeing it the way that God sees it. And it's that process of me instead of going my way, it's seeing that sin the way that God sees it and turning and going the other way and going the way that the Lord's presence wants to guide me according to his word. James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your ways, you double-minded. Stop trying to play games with God. Confess your sin, repent of it. And I'm telling you, And you would probably testify to this as well, many of you, that so many of us grew up in churches where everybody just walked around and walked all high and mighty and they pretended that they absolutely had their entire act together. And everybody walked around that way. And nobody ever shared times where they needed to confess sin and repent of it. And so it created this culture. I remember growing up in in, in some places where that culture was the case and everybody just hid everything behind. And you know what it created in the church? There's no way that I'm gonna be honest and real and admit that I need help because I don't want it talked about in the parking lot after church. But see, Solomon says, not if, when Lord. When we wander away from you. Allow this to be a place where confession and repentance is sought so that healing and restoration can happen. And when our hearts are postured that way, when our hearts are postured in a way to where we are willing to live our lives with an attitude of confession and repentance. This place will be a place that when someone is going through something difficult and someone is going through something where they've wandered away from the Lord, that this will be a place where an embrace will happen and forgiveness will be found and restoration will be a place that this church is known for. Why? Because we are God's temple. And as much as Solomon had a desire for that physical place to be that, the Lord desires his church, and what are we? We are the church to be that place as well. Here's the last thing, and we'll be done. Look at verses 41 through 43. Solomon says this, "'Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country,' For your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. You know what I love about Solomon? Solomon's like, you know what this temple's not going to be? It's not just going to be about us. It's not just going to be a place where it's all focused inward. But here's what we understand. We want this to be a place that testifies, that has beauty and influence to those that are not a part of this people. To those who do not have a relationship with God. To those who are not in the moment the people of God. We also want this place, Solomon says, to be a place for the foreigner. Look at what he says in verse 43. He says, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all, keyword all, for which the foreigner calls to you. In order, look at this in order that the, all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name, that all the peoples of the earth may know that, this, that the Lord is God and there is none other. Solomon knows. He's acknowledging in these verses That all the nations need to come to the realization that the Lord is the true God. And not just that all the nations need to come to that realization, but the people of Israel are the messengers by which this message is to go forth. Which leads us to the fourth way and the last way, that your heart plays a role in the Beauty and influence of this place, of this church, it's this. When your heart is burdened for the lost, this church will be a light for Jesus Christ in this city and beyond. But it starts with you. And it starts with me. It's this temple, this temple that's a part of Christ's church, this church. It starts with me having a heart to use Solomon's words, for the foreigner, for for someone who does not yet realize that the Lord is the true God, that the Lord loves him or her, that he sent Jesus Christ to live, die, and be risen for their sins. It's me embracing that as my own. It's me not hiding my story. It's me looking for opportunities to share my story. It's for me understanding that where I live, I live for a purpose. So it means the neighbor that I oftentimes see when I'm bringing out my garbage on a Wednesday night to have it there so to be ready to be picked up Thursday morning and I interact with, with her, it means that that is someone that I need to have a heart for that needs to hear my story about how God's presence came to dwell in me. It means that where you work and the person in the cubicle next to you that drives you crazy, that they need Jesus. Now, when all the light's out, hope you're not afraid of the dark. All the light's out in this place. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, And if I'm to turn on this light on my phone and shine it bright, and you also see the light coming off of my iPad, if it was completely dark, and we're not going to turn off the screens, but if it was completely dark, you would be able to see this light because it would pierce through this darkness. And this light would symbolize my life, that this is what God has called me to be, where I live, where I work, where I interact. But here's the awesome thing is when every person in this local church has a heart to look for opportunities to share your story. You've heard me say this. No one can argue with your story. But when that happens, all of a sudden, when not just one, but every person that makes up this place is committed to shine their light. I want you to pull out your phone right now. Pull it out. I don't, you'll never hear me say that again. Pull it out. Turn on your light and just hold it up. See, when every person is committed to have a burden for the lost and to shine their light where God has placed you, look at how it fills up this place. That's what, That's the beauty and the influence that God desires for this church, but it happens when the Lord is the king of our heart. Just listen to this. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want you to stand with me this morning. We can put the lights back up. And I want to read verses 54 through 56. Because there's such a testimony as Solomon closes out this prayer, understanding the beauty and influence that he desires this temple to have for God. That as we understand that we are God's temple, we are his church, and the beauty and influence that God desires out of this local church. Listen to Solomon's words and may they be, our heart. It says, Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and pre- plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of, an Israel, of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. And if you're a child of God and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has brought rest to your soul. I no longer have that sin separating me from God for all of eternity. According to all that he promised, not one word, Solomon says, not one word has failed all of his good promises. And he says, let your heart therefore be holy, true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as it is this day. Listen to me. The beauty and influence of this place dependent upon the Lord being the king of your heart and the king of my heart.